Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. But we are moving into a new series this Sunday on worship, and it doesn't have a really fancy title, it's just worship. And I'm really excited about this because I am a worshiper, first and foremost. I recognize that my place, my purpose in this world is to seek and be a worshiper of the living God. And just so you know, that is actually the purpose of every human being that God has created on this earth. And so we're going to get to talk about that for the next few weeks. We're going to start today with a very basic definition and try to go from there. And part of the problem with basic definitions in church world today is there's usually a whole lot of doctrine, some good, some bad, attached to people's opinionations of what uh, a definition actually is. And so you have to forgive us sometimes as preachers because we get about a half hour, 45 minutes once a week to try and address lifetime, lifelong issues, and it doesn't always work so well. So I'll remind you once again, what you could do after today is go back, listen to the message, examine the scripture for yourself, and come to a conclusion led by the Holy Spirit. And uh, what I find is usually we arrive at the same place when we do things like that. So, um, you know, don't just take my word for it today. Ask the Holy Spirit, hey, what are you saying to me about what I'm hearing today? It's really important that we do it. Um, I will say worship is very simple. while at the very same time, it is extremely complex for human beings to grasp. Uh, I believe that's because worship demands of us things that in our carnal or temporal state aren't always easy to offer up. That's why worship is so hard. If you like singing, it's easy to sing. But what is not easy for a human being is actually to lay down your will. That's a, that's a little bit harder. And so sometimes people get stung up, hung up on singing and laying down their will. Other times people can sing freely but won't lay down, won't lay down their will. And in either case, when we fail to lay down our will, we actually are falling short of the standard and definition of what worship actually is. So going from there, let me try to unpack this a little bit for you today. And uh, usually when I talk with someone who is struggling with the offerings of worship, it's because they are not naturally expressive personalities. And there are some of you here this morning for sure, you're just not naturally expressive. You know, Wade Blundell is over here already tucking his head, pulling his hood up. He's not a super overly expressive guy. He certainly is not going to come up and do an interpretive dance for us at any time in the future of the church. Although he is nodding his head like it is possible, I guess. Uh, but I don't expect it. And, you know, I don't expect everyone to be as expressive as everyone else. But here, here's what I want you to understand going away from today. It's actually not about expressiveness. Worship does have expression, but it is not so much about how expressive as what it is expressing. Very important to understand some of these as fundamental, fundamental parts of the reality of what worship actually is. And so um, the thing is that when worship is difficult, it actually still shows up in all of the expressions one may have. So if it's easy to sing, it's easy to sing. If it's hard to give, it's hard to give. Both can be expressions of worship. Raising your hands can be an expression of worship. But if we are absent the laying down of our life, it becomes indicative of a problem. So what is God actually wanting us to do? Well, God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. We're going to get that to that in just a moment. But what God is really seeking is those who will lay down their lives completely for him. See, we're all going to worship something. And in fact, right now, at this very moment, every person in this room, every person watching online is actively laying their life down for something. 
The question is, who or what is it? Is it worthy of that sacrifice of your time, your life, your will, your emotions, your finances, whatever it might be? The question is, is it or whom is it worthy? And you see, it's, the, it's, 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 it's actually the who. We need to understand this about worship. It's the who that needs to move to the forefront of why we are worshiping. On that note, let me just say that a major problem with how people approach worship is actually the specific how. We get distracted by the how. And it's actually not about the how. It's about the who before it's about the what. Okay? And, and, and to understand the who, check this out, you, you actually need to understand the why. So that you can realize the where and the when. I can't say all that again. It's just all five of the W's kind of work out, right? But, but it starts with who and what that who has done for me and you because it's true. Well, I don't know where Mara is at this time, but I, I literally rhyme-wrapped an entire lecture to her yesterday and she was totally blown away by it. Um, I thought, yeah, when Tice was going, he actually started the vanilla ice wrap. Did you notice? Stop, collaborate, and listen. He, he started it. He just didn't feel in the present moment of the leading of the Holy Spirit to go all the way, I guess. All right. Anyway, so um, the major problem with how people approach worship is specifically that they get lost in the what, where, when, why and forget that it's actually starting with the who. Wow. And they're all fine considerations, but they all will distract from the real goal of worship. And you say, Pastor Trav, what's the real goal of worship? Well, I'm going to tell you what the real goal of worship is. Here, here it is. Are you ready for this? The real goal of worship is so that you and I may enter the presence of God. Amen. That, I know, that it should sound more theological, more spiritual. I should have 52 Bible verses to back that up. Let me just say it this way. All of Scripture backs that up. Yes, All of Scripture backs that up. You and I are designed by our Creator to enter into the presence of our Creator. Like, I'll establish this more before we're done. Um, let's start with uh, the definition of the word worship from the New Testament, which is proskuneo. Proskuneo. There it is. From the word pros and the probable derivative of kuon, meaning to kiss or like a dog licking his master's hand. To fawn, to crouch, literally or figuratively, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence, to adore, worship. That's what worship is. Like a dog licking its master's hand. Or, for the teenagers and young adults, worship means to kiss. So, hopefully nobody's been inappropriately worshiping anywhere. Doing anything of that sort. All right. Uh, now, this is the word, just so you know, this is the word that's used in the very famous passage from the book of John, chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, where he blows her mind with the revelation that he is that Messiah that is to be worshipped and is going to come, and in the Samaritan woman's word, make everything make sense to us. So let's just read that together, John 4, 23 and 24. But a time is coming, Jesus said, and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
And it's interesting for me because uh, I, I do love the word for spirit in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, its, it's contemporary word is, um, oh, now it just left my mind, the ruah. Ruah is the breath of God, the spirit of God, all the same thing. And of course, uh, the word pneuma in the Greek is the same thing. Pneuma is the word for air, but it's also the word for spirit. How many mechanics understand pneumatic tools? That's biblical Greek right there. It is, a, it is the force of air, the force of breath, the force of air pressure that drives a tool. Pneumatic comes from the Greek word pneuma. But here's what I love. God is, God is pneuma, but those who worship him must worship in pneumati and truth. I want you to understand this. In the Bible, when you encounter the word pneuma, it will either talk about the spirit of a man, small s, or it will be talking about the spirit of God, capital S. And it actually goes that way where it, the emphasis on the uppercase exists. And so we need to understand this because if we want to worship God in Numa, we need to understand who he is and why he is. Understand this actually just as a little rabbit trail to take right now. It feels right in the moment. Um, but, but if you can get this through your head, what is it that God did when he formed man from the dust? He breathed his ruah into man. I want you to understand this because when I say God created us to be his worshipers, you know what that actually means in the workings of Scripture? That God breathed his, his life into us, and for the rest of our existence, we are designed to breathe our, breathe our life back to him. That's the exchange. He breathes in, we receive life. Out of that life that he has given, we breathe out our praise. It's your breath, what song we sing, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise to you only. Okay? There is great theology in all the music we sing in a church, just so you know. Now, not every church always has great theology, and not every songwriter is writing great theology. But by and large, we really are specific about good doctrine, good theology being in songs. And it's for that reason, because it reinforces some of these biblical concepts to us again and again, so that they become a part of our understanding when we read and approach God's Word. So we all want to worship God, who is spirit, who is pneuma, and pneumati, and truth. And it is because we have to. Well, are you adding that, Pastor Trav? No. It says that the Father seeks uh, them to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must. Someone say must. Must. Does that sound optional when God says it? Is it optional when your mother said it? Nope. When your grandmother said it? Nope. When your gra no. Must is not optional. Must makes it a command. A very clear directive to say it the nicest way possible. So we must do it this way. But what does that actually mean? I want to tell you this secret because it will hopefully revolutionize your approach to singing and giving and serving in, in a church. But worshiping, worship leading, is actually much less about the singing and playing of instruments than it is about entering God's presence. You can have a terrible worship team. I mean horrible. I mean pitchy. I mean... The guitarist has no idea what he's doing. Someone sent me a meme last week that right above where the worship team played in a, in a particular church, there was the Bible verse that said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is an unfortunate placement for the team and for that wonderful, wonderful verse. Um, so you can have the worst worship team, but the worst worship team 
can actually take people deeper into the presence of God than the very best one that can when they don't understand why they're doing the what they're doing. See, it's not, about the, it's not necessarily about the skillfulness of the playing. It's not about the perfection of the voice. And by the way, the title of today's message, I guess I should try to remember, is Presence, Not Perfection. It's about presence, not perfection. It's not about being a perfect giver to become a perfect worshiper. Why? Because the practice of being perfected has its roots in the fact that Jesus has sanctified you and I. That's where perfection is coming from. So perfection for you and I is unachievable while we walk this earth, but holiness is not. We are given holiness by Christ. It's out of that holiness that we perfect things in our lives. And so wherever you're starting from today, it's the right place to start when it comes to all expressions of worship in your life because all God is looking for is someone who's going to do it in spirit, in their spirit, and in truth. But what, about, what does that truth part mean? Well, the truth part means that as you lay down your sacrifice, there is nothing you're trying to hide in your sacrifice. And what most church people do, not most, that's unfair, what many church people, what many religious-minded people have done over all the generations that men have tried to serve God is they have tried to worship God in spirit and in a lie. In other words, I'm over here and I'm secretly having an affair, but I'm showing up to church saying, I will give you all my worship. Forgetting that sin is what drives us from the presence of God. These things don't flow together. They don't work together. And we're going to cover that before we get to the end, I promise. Here's what we must understand as we move forward. In the Old Testament form of tabernacle worship, sacrificial offerings were made and priests, someone say priests, and the priests carried those offerings to the presence of God, which was in the tabernacle, or, or eventually in the temple that Solomon constructed. And i got to tell you that in the Old Testament, it was bloody, messy, smelly, dirty work. I don't know if you can consider this, but let's say there's a half a million Israelites crossing through the desert, and they're worshiping God in the tabernacle setup, and they bring their peace offerings, their sin offerings, their guilt offerings, their fellowship offerings. They bring the mandatory offerings for atonement. Can you just imagine for half a million people how many lambs, doves, bulls, rams that was? It was a, it was a mess, guys. It was an absolute mess. Can you imagine how many gallons of water were used to just clean the implements of worship after a festival. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling if you really think about it. Um, and it required constant preparation and constant cleaning of, of, the, of the implements and the articles of that worship. Why? Well, because of the holiness of God. God did not permit His people even to enter His presence with dirt under their fingernails. I mean, when he said you had to be clean, you had to be clean. They say that when the priest, the high priest, would enter the Holy of Holies, they were so worried that he would be struck dead because of an impurity in the presence of God, they would tie a rope around his leg to pull him back out in case he died while he was ministering at the altar. I do not want to be the pastor of that church, just for the record. <laughs> Understand... That music, 
was a part of that worship, even in the Old Testament. Because I know there's always a theologically minded person who, I, let me just say this in love, that your, your theology is probably a little puffed up in your own mind because music is such a huge part of worship all through Scripture. Um, it, it, was, it was a part of worship. It was absolutely a part of worship. It was not only a part of worship, but a part of spiritual warfare. And in some cases in the Old Testament, it was even a part of actual flesh and blood warfare. Now, here's what's kind of cool about this. You're going to have a hard time getting away from music as a part of worship if you actually read your Bible. Because even into the book of Revelation, specifically 5.8, it tells us that the elders and the saints sing a new song to the Lord. But with all that... I say all that to bring you to the place that to say it's not just about the music, it's not just about the singing. That's one of the what's when it comes to worship. It's one of the how's when it becomes to worship. Sometimes it's even a part of the why when it comes to worship. But what's it really about at the end of the day? It's about who. When there it comes to your worship or your warfare or your prayer life, you're going to have a hard time getting away music. Let me just ask you something. When they marched around Jericho seven times for seven days, and on the seventh day they marched seven times around Jericho. Remember the story, anybody? What happened? Seventh time on the seventh day, all of Israel, finally after seven days of everybody not talking. be so hard for a kid like my daughter Annika. be so hard for her. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> we know. If you live at our house, you know. Um, Lover, amazing, talented, beautiful girl. Um, seventh time, seventh day, Israel raised a shout of praise to the Lord. They blew the trumpets, they played the instruments, and what happened? God sent a nuclear bomb and knocked the walls down. No, he did not send a nuclear bomb. He didn't. Let, let me, I, I hope this blows your mind because it blows my mind as I think about it. What did God use to bring the walls of Jericho down? His presence. Pastor Trap, how do you know that? Because all through the Old Testament, whenever, time, whenever, whenever the people of God worshipped or celebrated before God and the ground started shaking, it was because of the presence of God. It was. Every time. Every time that the people cried out to the Lord and His glory fell, the ground would shake. Guys, God did not need nuclear weaponry to bring down Jericho. He just needed his presence. Think about it. How many walls in your life are still standing because you're holding the presence of God at arm's length in your worship? I'll tell you what, all of them are still standing for that reason. All of them. In 2 Chronicles 7, when the priests offer the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord falls like a cloud so that no one can even stand. When Moses ascended the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from the Lord and the glory of the Lord came in a cloud and shook the foundations of the mountains. Even in the book of Hebrews when, we are now say, when it says we are now in a time where all things are being shaken. Guys, it's the, it's the presence of God that drives the shaking. His presence shakes walls to these days. It shakes foundations to this day in order to prove that he alone is one who cannot be shaken. His kingdom cannot be shaken. I just, by the Spirit of God, would you just let that sink into your mind today? 
in all the scripture, the presence of God and the sacrifice, these things begin to flow together. And I want you to understand this, that whether they're singing or dancing or shouting or raising hands, understand this, that the sacrifice in scripture is always worship. Always worship. If you can't get your head around that, it's actually just because you're still not understanding what worship actually is. I'm going to try to finish unpacking with you. It occurred to me just as I was finishing up, and so I'm going to try to tie this note I left myself to jump into. The sacrifice is always worship, even if it is the sacrifice offered to atone for sin. And that's actually because what was lost in original sin was the presence of God with man. That's why atonement is required. We say things like, well, sin, and, sin, sin breaks relationship. Well, that's true, but what do you do then with someone who feels like my relationships seem fine even though there's lots of sin? Right? We, we oversimplify some things. Here, here's, the, here's the theological truth. Sin absolutely separates us from God's presence as in being in his presence. More on that in just a moment. Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is, what is the spiritual service of worship? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Here's the cool thing about the book of Romans, and specifically Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 to the last verse of chapter 11 is actually talking to us about all of the amazing things God has done through Jesus. The miracles, the, the ministry, the, the provision. Oh, I mean, Romans chapter 8 alone will blow your mind. Romans chapter 8 is enough in, in and of itself to get people saved. I mean, it's a powerful chapter. But Romans 1 through chapter 11 is speaking to us about all of these amazing things that God has done. But suddenly when we get to chapter 12, it turns to this topic. And what do we have to do in return for that? Did you catch it when you read it? Let me read it to you again just in case. Chapters 1 through 11 are the mercies of God that, that, the, that the Apostle Paul is speaking to. So in other words, I urge you therefore, brothers, by everything I've written to you about in the previous 11 chapters, to present your bodies, your physical flesh and blood bodies, not as dead lambs and doves were presented in the past, but now as a living and holy sacrifice that is set apart as unblemished, that it is the best part, not perfect, but the best that you can offer, making it acceptable to God. See, we get caught in a trap when it comes to our worship that we think that when God wants a sacrifice, that he wants something that is perfect. That is not the case. 
We say that because we're informed by a doctrinal tangent coming out of the Old Testament where we learn maybe in Sunday school or Bible college or whatever your training has been that God actually was furious and rejected sacrifices when people would bring him a spotted lamb instead of an unblemished lamb. And we see, see, God rejects spotted lambs. That's not the case. What God was rejecting was the fact that even though they had something that was the best to give, they were giving something less than the best. And that's what it means to worship God, not in spirit, but in a lie. When I give God anything less than my best, I am not worshiping in spirit and in truth. I am worshiping it in spirit and in something that is not the truth. It had nothing to do with the lamb. The lamb is innocent. It's not the lamb's fault that it's born with a spot on its forehead. And it's not your fault in this case that you are not perfect yet. Let me be clear on that. You're responsible for your sin. But you know what? It's actually not your fault that you were born into a sinful world with a sinful nature. It's just how it is. What God has a problem with is when we come and say, I'm going to give it all to you, Lord. But behind our back, we're holding the best part back in our hand. Acting as if he can't see it. And see, God doesn't appreciate that. Because he sees it. And, 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 and the sad thing is, is that you might think you actually have to somehow fake this perfect gift to God when he already knows how imperfect you are. God is not asking for you to be perfect. He is perfecting you by the blood of Christ and by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. What He has done for you, what He does expect you and I to walk in, is the holiness that He has already put on us because of the righteous blood of Jesus being shed for your sin and mine. You see, you can't help but talk worship and gospel at the same time because they are absolutely interconnected with each other. I'm a perfectionist in about 50% of my nature. The other 50% of my nature is a procrastinator. Do you have any idea how conflicted I am every day I'm alive on this earth? That is, that is a seriously demented con confliction. I don't even know if confliction is a word right now. It sounds like a word. Uh, it's good. My, my perfectionism and my procrastination war with each other. Do you want to know? Can I just tell you this? Guys, I stopped trying to be perfect for Jesus years ago. Because it's not about perfection. It's about presence. It's not about perfection. And I know that there are some of you sitting here this morning, and the Holy Spirit is going to have to hit you in the head with a hammer today to get you to open up. But I pray in Jesus' name that it happens for you. Because your ideology that somehow your perfectness is going to somehow please God, you've, you've missed the gospel. You've missed it. Guys, he, the who, has made you holy. The he, the who, has made you holy. What makes your worship acceptable to God is the blood of Jesus. That's what does it. And certainly the answer can be deeper than that, and we, we can explore it, and we will explore it in the weeks to come. But the acceptable, the acceptable sacrifice that God is looking for in the most simple terms is to be a sacrifice that is both living and holy. 
Someone say living and holy. That's God's sacrifice that he wants from us. Living and holy. Not half alive and perfect. Living and holy. This is our spiritual act of worship. Romans 12 goes on to say, therefore, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, this concept Jesus actually talked about more than one place, but I'll just share Matthew 23, 17 really briefly with you. Understand this, that when we talk about holiness, not being perfection, Jesus taught this doctrine. Here's what he says in Matthew 23, 17. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Jesus asked religious thinking people this question. Because their tradition was to say, if you're going to swear, swear by the gold in the temple. What, it, what does this mean? It means their value system was off track with reality. They believed that the gold was valuable. And Jesus is like, guys, we use gold for paving stones in my father's house. The gold means nothing to God in heaven. It's elemental for the earth. Gold means nothing to him. What sanctified the gold? The holiness of God that dwelt in the temple. So let me ask you this question. What sanctifies you? Is it the gold that you bring? Is it the perfect pitch you can sing with? Is it that you're the best server in the kingdom of God? None of those. Because it's the presence of God that makes you holy. It's the presence of God that makes you holy. It's the presence of God that sets you apart. It's the presence of God that sanctifies you guys. It's his presence. And that presence is why we are a people of presence. That's why in this church, it is a core value for us to pursue the presence of God because his presence is a sanctifying presence. Have you ever noticed that? Real good worship Sunday by baptisms, people getting saved. It's just amazing how much more holy I feel. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. makes me think of something else, and that's that sometimes in our journey we think that, yeah, you know, Pastor Trav, he feels holy. And so when I'm more like that or when I get farther down the road, I'm going to feel more holy. Can I just tell you that the more I know Jesus every day, the more sinful I feel? Yeah. <laughs> every step I get closer to him actually points out more sin in my life, not, not less. But you know what's beautiful is, is that my identity isn't in the fact that I'm a fallen man. It's that I'm raised to life in Christ. That his righteousness is my righteousness. That his good works in me are prepared long beforehand, predestined for me to do in Christ. Because his plan for me was to secure me in his kingdom. That's amazing. That's where assurance comes from. If you can just get your heart and mind around this today. It's the presence of God that brings the living to your worship the living to your sacrifice. It's his presence that does that. 
It's your living sacrifice, the spiritual act of worship that brings the presence of God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. It's the same exchange. God breathes into man. Man breathes back to God. This is a cyclical miracle that we have seen since the beginning of creation. Did we really see it since the beginning of creation? Did we not just sing the song that points out the biblical truth this morning? Even the rocks cry out. Heaven and nature declare the glory of God. Why? Because God breathed out the stars. And what do the stars do in return? They breathe back and point out the glory of God. Guys, everything that is came from him and everything that is returns to him. so important to be people of his presence and not in that religious way, but in the way that actually shakes the heart, shakes the ground of your spiritual life and mind. My life willingly laid down, sanctified by Jesus, is the sacrifice by which I enter into the holy place, the presence of God. In the Old Testament, they went through the veil. Who remembers what happened at the cross? The veil of the temple was ripped completely in two from top to bottom. Significant, absolutely it is. There's no more veil. God in Jesus removed the veil that separated us from the holy place, from the presence of God once again. God in Christ restores the original relationship. He purchases us back from the original sin. But my life must still be willingly laid down so that Jesus sanctifies it. And that becomes the sacrifice by which I enter into the holy place. With assurance, by the way. Uh, A guy by the name of David Campbell, who you'll be hearing more about, wrote in a book uh, called No Diving. And he he points this out. I just want to get this exactly right. It's short. But uh, if you haven't given up your independence, you haven't given up anything. That's profoundly true. Especially when it comes to being a disciple of Christ. That is to say that for any of us to enter the presence of God, it can only be done through the blood of Jesus. It can only be done through the laying down of our life. Have you ever considered that when Jesus told the parables and was speaking, he said, it's easier for a rich man to enter, uh, the, uh, put a camel through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter heaven? Have you ever considered that that verse actually isn't about money? Because it's actually not. It's not about money. It's about someone's heart. It's about how someone perceives themselves and how that prevents them from entering the kingdom. And this is where so many who are trying to follow Jesus fall short. Just as the rich young ruler did, Jesus said, I want you to follow all all my commandments. He said, Lord, I've done all these things since I was a child. Jesus' response to the rich young ruler was what? Well, then go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And it says, and the man turned away sadly because he was of much wealth. What's the issue? He He couldn't lay his life down as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. He couldn't perform the spiritual act of worship, which was to lay it all down sell it, to be separated from it so he could be joined to Christ. 
My dependence on him is truly the only and the greatest gift that I can offer. And it's not the first time, but even Homer Simpson understood the theological depth of that reality. I'll never forget the episode, not that I'm admitting to have ever watching Simpsons, of course. Um, but he realized one thing, after really messing up his marriage and to gain popularity for his own little deal he had, he was telling personal secrets about his wife. And, of course, that's never a good idea. Any of you young guys, you should learn this now so you don't have to learn it a hard way. Um, but, but, but at the end of it all, he realizes how wrong it was to be exposing his life. And so this is what he offers to his wife, Marge. He says, Marge, the one thing I can offer you and this is true, that no one else can. It's complete, utter dependency. Get your head around this today. Can you offer, can you personally offer God anything more unique than that? You're the only you in all of the universe. You're, you're it. You are the only you that he has made. And you in that have the only gift that truly you can offer. And it is the most unique gift according to who he made you to be. To offer God your complete and utter dependency. Or if I can continue the biblical analogy, to lay your life down on the altar and become a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. I'll invite the worship team to come back and I just close with this last little part from the book of Hebrews. I want you to remember this, that in the past, the priest went in on behalf of the people. You brought your, your sacrifice from the farm to the tabernacle or to the temple. If you were a city person, you would maybe go and buy a sacrifice, or you would catch a dove or a pigeon if you were of, 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 of small means, if you didn't have a lot of money. Which, by the way, I love because the, the, the imagery is, is not that God is ever looking for the big or the best. He's just looking for your best. Um, but you would bring that sacrifice, and you would bring it to the gate, and you would bring it into the courtyard. But from there, the, priest, the priesthood would take over. And they would prepare the sacrifice, and they would lay it. And certain sacrifices you would stay and eat. Certain sacrifices they would eat. But when it came right down to it, there was only one guy at the end, the, the high priest, who could ultimately carry that sacrifice into the most holy place. And it was, if I remember right, it was actually, by that point, we're really just down to the blood. Um, but all these, all these rules and all these regulations. But here's something amazing that happened at the cross. Jesus sanctified all who had put their faith in him, made them holy enough that they could go to the presence of God themselves without the need for a high priest. In fact, without the need for any priest to mediate that transaction for the forgiveness of sin, for fellowship, for peace. And I want to point out to you today, guys, that this is a simple truth, that when it comes to the living sacrifice, no one else can offer it for you. No one else can take it into the Holy of Holies but you. 
That time is done away with. And by the way, God only used that time to foretell of what his plan for salvation was all along. It was a symbolism of what Christ would ultimately do so that we could all have that assurance to enter once again into that holy place, that that walk in the garden in the cool of the day relationship that God intended for man to have from the beginning. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's so true that no one else is needed for you to enter the holy place. There's an old hymn we sang growing up in church that, frankly, we just rarely would sing anymore because it would take so much explaining to do. But it went, there is a fountain filled with blood flown from Emmanuel's veins. And all who wash beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That imagery is really hard for people, in a woke culture especially. But what I love about that hymn is it trains something in my doctrine growing up in the church. And that is the perpetual reality of Christ's work on the cross. It's it's done once and for all, but it's done once and for all in all time. And so I can approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, the Holy of Holies, with assurance and faith and confidence. Why? Because the the saving work, the, the restorative work of Christ on the cross, which I have accepted, flows continually over me. And yes, we should keep a short account with God. Yes, we should run around this life in unconfessed sin. Of course, we should deal with our issues because God wants to heal us and He ultimately is perfecting us. But right now, today, that fountain that Christ began at the cross is sprinkled upon your heart and your mind, on your conscience, on your mind. The washing of the word that happens every time we submit ourselves to God's word is the purifying process that gives you the assurance that you can approach the holy place. And you might be stuck thinking, well, someone needs to do it for me. I'm just waiting for someone to take me by the hand and guide me. Guys, that's not how it's supposed to work. The way it works is because of what Jesus did. You accept his life. You accept his salvation. You accept all the promises by faith. And because of that, you can approach God. You can have a relationship with him. You can walk with him. He will come and walk with you. He will reveal his presence to you. Because you're perfect? No, because you're a living sacrifice laid down on the altar of who He is. One maybe last attempt to help you understand this reality. Everywhere you go in this world, you are in the presence of God. You can't escape 
King David wrote about it. I could go to the highest place in the earth, your presence is there. I go to the lowest, I could go right down to hell, your presence is there. Whether I make my bed or get up in the morning, your presence is everywhere. But I want you to understand this. There is a tremendous difference between in, between being in God's presence and be, being in God's presence. It's kind of like if you're married, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can be married or you can be married. What's the difference? Intimacy. Intimacy is the simple difference. And you and I and every unbeliever, every believing person that walks this earth is in God's presence. But let me tell you something. The Word of God says there is a difference between those who are in God's presence and those who are in God's presence. And you and I get to be in God's presence. your opportunity today to enter in or pass it by because it's something that only you can do. Hebrews 10.22 maybe is really a challenge today to with a sincere heart assured of faith knowing that Jesus' sacrifice has made your sacrifice possible enter in now to the holy place. Not because of your perfection but because he has made you and I holy and acceptable to become partakers in the overwhelming presence of God. So right now, I invite you to stand, and we're going to ask this question. We ask it every Sunday. Holy Spirit, is there anything you want to say to me about what's been spoken here today? And I challenge you this morning to ask the question for real in sincerity, in reality, with all your heart. God, what are you saying to me? I want to hear your voice. Lord, I want you to speak to me. And I just challenge you with this. Don't think that God wants to talk to you about what you want to talk to him about. Don't, 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 don't be that person right now. Don't come with your requests for God other than the request to be in his presence and just see what happens. Father, I pray for each person in this room today, each person watching online. And Jesus, we thank you for your work at the cross. We thank you that you have made us heirs in the promise. We thank you that you have restored us, that you have purchased us back from sin and death. Father, that you have planted our feet in your kingdom. Jesus, you have made us sons and daughters of this kingdom. Lord God, that you have sozoed us, that you have saved us, not just from sin and sickness, but from a, a broken mind and from woundedness and from all the spiritual damage that we could incur in this life, Lord, we thank you that you have bought it all for us. But Lord Jesus, more than anything today, we thank you that you have enabled us to approach this throne of grace with confidence, that you are allowing us by your blood to enter into the holy place where we can meet with our Father, where we can hear his voice, where we can receive those things that he has for us which are good and perfect. Lord, we thank you for the cross. And Holy Spirit, would you just speak to us in this moment? Amen. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.